Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hardcore Bitcoin Podcast. I'm Mr. High, and with me is my wonderful co-host, Mr. Low. How are you, Mr. Low? Very, very good. I'm excited for this episode, Mr. High. Uh, great to talk to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. Uh, the holidays are fast approaching, and you know what else is fast approaching? The Bitcoin happening, which is supposed to come at some point in um, mid-next year. So um, I thought it could be really uh, good to chat about different aspects of this happening. Uh, what do you think? Is that a good topic for today? Yeah, I love it. Let's let's talk about let's talk about it. I'm excited for it too. It's like a rebirth. It's this moment now the market has all been waiting for, and I'm waiting for it. It'll be exciting to see what's going to happen to the price. Obviously, that's really what everyone's concerned about. So uh, maybe we start there. Yeah, definitely. So do you want to uh, give a very quick overview for uh, listeners that may not know what the happening is? Uh, what is it? Sure. Uh, I think in without going too deep in layman's terms, basically the reward for you know cracking the puzzle, solving uh, um, the, the chain, if you will, is the uh, pending a block is going to have, <laughs> be cut in half. And obviously that restricts the supply of coins out there. So the market is excited about it because with a uh, further restricted supply, or at least the, the velocity of the growth of the supply is going to, uh, is going to be decreased. Um, therefore, the price should be increasing. Is that a fair overview, Mr. High? Yeah, that's a perfect overview. And I have to say, the first time I heard about this, I, I thought that it's genius in so many ways, right? Because this is the um, inflation rate in, in a sense, of, of the whole monetary base of Bitcoin. And the way Satoshi Nakamoto structured it is, you know, it started with uh, 50 Bitcoin per block, then it went down to 25 Bitcoin per block, uh, more or less four years later. Uh, then it went to 12 and a half Bitcoin per block. Um, and one thing that struck me as, as pure genius about this is the fact that, you know, he could have done the same thing just purely linearly, right? He could have said, you know, each additional block, you get a little bit less reward. But because he did it, like, really cutting the supply in half every four years, um, I think it's genius just from a marketing perspective. Like, it creates such a shock to the system that everybody will talk about it. Um, so, so you know, um, I love marketing. So I think that's really uh, a very cool way to structure the uh, monetary supply of a system. Uh, like if you think, for example, of a gold mining, right? It's not that suddenly the supply of gold drops by half. Like nothing like this has ever happened. Like anything where we create more of, uh, it's usually you discover more and more supply. Uh, and here in Bitcoin, it's almost they flipped it on its head. It's like suddenly, oh my God, now we have less supply coming in. So I like that aspect. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I like it too. And, and obviously, it there's a technical purpose, right, for it. Um, although I, I love the marketing angle, your uh, know, marketing angle really is a point of view to say, hey, it creates a bit of a shock to the system, especially, you know, the, the old Bitcoiner OGs, if you will, or the folks that are super into the industry know about this and, and understand it. Um, but there's a good amount of folks out there that don't, uh, or at least, you know, don't follow it closely to and to understand what's going to happen but the technical part of it is you know it it just becomes more difficult right the difficulty increases in solving the uh the uh the, the block if you will but uh, and, and that's important because as you know as technology increases and as chips become cheaper and so on and so forth theoretically and this you know compute compute power increases right it becomes easier to solve solve the puzzle and so yep. this is a mechanism to Sorry, yeah. I just want to um, say I think uh, those two things are unrelated, actually. The difficulty increase and the having it's two completely separate things. Now, yes, they're correlated, but, um, but it's not necessarily related to each other. So let's say 90% of the miners stop working today. Um, the difficulty will decrease by a lot. Uh, that doesn't mean that the having won't happen. So it's, it's like two completely different aspects of Bitcoin. Uh, but the idea of the halving is that, you know, after the next halving, there will just be less Bitcoin created, less Bitcoin mined, no matter what difficulty. Um, and, and that's the kind of interesting part where 
you know, if until now, uh, there's many charts online that like calculate how much Bitcoin was created in the four years from the previous having until today um, or, or until the next one. And then, you know, the amount of Bitcoin created from the next having until the one after that will be literally half. Uh, of. And so the question is, how will that affect the price? So what are your initial thoughts about how it would affect the price? Will it go up or will it go down? By the way, I, I most people think it will go up by a lot, but I've definitely heard some opinions of how it can go down because of the halving. But why why would you think it will go down? No, I don't think it will go down. I think it will go up. But oh, what's up? What are the opinions of why it will go down? Uh, you know, it was something about. I didn't go really deep into it because I didn't agree with it. But it was something about you get less security because um, basically the. If you think of it, the amount of Bitcoin um, that is created is what miners get paid uh, for securing the network. So the, that guy said, you know, if suddenly, let's say you have a security guard uh, or a security company guarding a bank uh, and they have a budget of like a million dollars per year to get, guard the bank, uh, suddenly you have half a million dollars uh, to guard the same bank, which will mean that the bank becomes a less lucrative place to store your money almost by definition. Like the, the, the only value proposition of Bitcoin is that it's not hackable, that it's secure. And so I think that guy's um, argument was like, you know, you have the amount of investment in security, which means the value will go down. But I, again, I don't buy this argument. I'm just saying it's not automatic that the price will go up. We need to kind of formulate the thesis of why we think the price would go up. And then the other interesting question is, if we think that the price will go up, uh, why isn't that already priced in, right? Because like, if you think about it, usually things that are not priced in have a certain uncertainty um, attached to them. And then as the uncertainty is re resolved, the price reacts. But here there's no uncertainty, like we're 100% certain that the halving will happen, you know, unless there's a bug or something, but this bug thing is always looming. Like, it will never get resolved. So then the question is, why Why isn't it priced in? And if it is priced in, why should it affect the price? Yeah, so I think I <clears throat> I agree that the price is going to increase. Um, I, I, let's talk about whether it's priced in or not, and I think it's an important topic. I do think you know, my thesis is kind of taking it maybe a step further is, do we really care that it's priced in or not? Um, and let's talk about that that afterwards, because I actually don't necessarily care. And I think that in this case, the price of the currency of Bitcoin is going to be set by, yes, supply constraints, which is what we're talking about here, but also demand. And I believe because it's such a nascent asset class, especially given the global asset class, the, the demand will actually drive the price further. Now, in the inherent in what I'm saying or implicit assumptions are, oh, I actually I should restate. We should also talk about out of a total price of Bitcoin, right? How much is driven by the supply constraints and is that price then versus also how much is driven by the demand in the system and how is that price then, right? So I think there's there's two elements here. On the supply side, that's actually a really good distinction, and not many people are talking about it. So I'm excited to separate the supply and the demand side of it. Perfect. Well, I, so on the supply side, you know, there is a bit of a risk. Like you said, if there's a bug, <clears throat> I think the two main risks are if there's a bug, and the second one is if there's a hard fork, right? If there's some sort of fork that's going to fundamentally change the chain. And theoretically, with everything that we know now, the more of these, you know, happenings that are, are that pass, and especially given the whole, you know, fork of Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash way back, and I'm aging myself a little bit, 2017 or 2018, I don't remember exactly when it was, but because Bitcoin was brutal, it was like summer 2017. It was brutal. Yeah, so summer 2017. I remember that was. That was, I think, the the big make it or break it point for Bitcoin, and it, and it made it because people weren't essentially able to hijack and hard fork the chain over uh, to Bitcoin Cash, and so and so 
there is though a risk that this happening won't happen on the chain will be forked on the next one and the next one however small the risk is you know we're not a hundred percent certain that this is going to happen even though the code says it is oh interesting that's that's a good point so the code says that it's supposed to happen but until it actually happens there's a risk there I mean, I would lump this with just the general risk of, you know, shit not working the way we expect it to. And, and so, but I think that doesn't change over time. Like, I don't think that, uh, you know, is, is, it always looms. Like, it always, we can always have an inflation bug. We can always have some, some exploit or whatever. Uh, so do you mind if we just, just for the sake of this conversation, focus just on the having specifically? So... Let's say inflation, all the other bugs, everything is like the same. Why would the having increase the price? You think it will increase the price, right? So let's yeah. dive deep into like why will it increase the price in your opinion uh, from the supply side and from the demand side. I mean, I can take the supply side. It's very easy, right? It's like if the demand is constant and suddenly you have half of it created like before, price goes up. Just very, very simple economics. It really reminds me of like, you know, there, <laughs> there was a time where people were speaking about peak oil, right? It's like, oh, no, all the oil reserves, we're, we're tapped into them and they're going to, you know, <laughs> we're going to run out of oil and then the price will shoot up, right? Now, what happened is they discovered fracking and they discovered more oil. But uh, <laughs> the idea is supply goes down, price goes up. Now, what, what about the demand side? What do you think? Sure. Well, given constant demand, supply goes on, uh, demand goes up. I sorry. Before we go to demand, the reason why why the change over time, right, and the risk of the of the chain being forked matters is because if we were talking about whether it's priced in, because this is a fundamentally such a different asset where it's there is a mathematical certainty in what exactly will happen to the supply, and the question then is why isn't it 100% priced into the to the price of, of Bitcoin? Because there is some sort of risk that it won't happen, and that I do believe that risk changes over time. The risk was much greater in 2016, for example, or coming into 2017 because of the whole Bitcoin Cash scenario. There was a real chance that it was about to get forked. Now that Bitcoin has withstood that test, right, and as it becomes bigger, has more scale, more resilient, the risk decreases, and so more and more of this should be priced in. Now, I'm not, yeah. not sure I understand this point fully. So you're saying there's a risk, right? Instead of 12 and a half, is it going to 12 and a half or is it going to like 6.25? I think it's going to 6.25 after the next time. Here, here, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Regardless of where it goes, maybe mm -hmm. 12 and a half, 6.25 or, or whatever, 25, 50, 100. Let's bring Bitcoin back all the way to inception, right? The network is not resilient. Yeah. And so let's say in the code, it says there's a happening that goes, whatever, you know, 150, 25, 12 and a half, and so on and so forth, right? And these are more or less the block targets. Mm -hmm. Whatever the rules are, it doesn't really matter what the rules are. Now, when the, when the chain is less resilient, let's say the chain has 100 people on it, it's easy to hard fork it and say, hey, you know what? Instead of it going to uh, 50, in a month or in a certain couple of uh, hundred blocks or whatever, we're going to make it go to 75. Now we hard forked the essentially Bitcoin into a new code, right? Into a hard change. Mm -hmm. But over time as Bitcoin as a network, right? becomes bigger. It becomes harder and harder to hard fork it. Right. And I think the last stand of anybody that, you know, tried to try to pull Bitcoin into a different kind of rule set, right? Increase the block sizes. That was a big argument back in, in that uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash, right? Um, mm -hmm. That was, I feel like was the last stand of everyone coming against Bitcoin because it was, you know, a lot of big powerful players in the market. Yeah. Now that Bitcoin has withstood that and as time goes on, right? And as it becomes, has more and more people running nodes it becomes harder and harder to fork Bitcoin where, you know, in 2010, it would have been very easy to theoretically yep. to fork Bitcoin if someone came after it. Right. So yep. therefore the risk increases or, or the certainty that the original formula of the happenings staying increases over time, but it's still not yet hundred percent. And theoretically we'll never, we'll never be, we'll come close to it, but not necessarily. And that change at alpha, if you will, is going, is what's going to, keep it from being fully priced in. Okay. 
I get it now. So yeah, that's one aspect. I, I could add another aspect of, and, and you know, we probably could list many, many, many things that could change uh, that basically the anticipation um, of the change is not priced in because you know we don't know if the change will happen. So like another thing is what I mentioned about the security, right? We don't know. Like it was very surprising. I think 2019 was the year where the uh, hash rate kind of decoupled from price a little bit. You know, if you look at 2017, it was like very much like price goes up, hash rate goes up. Like more and more people want to mine it. But like in 2019, um, I think there was, you know, many new technologies. There's this guy that's flaring gas uh, that would otherwise just be wasted. Um, flaring gas in Bitcoin. There's like hydro. There's, there's so many innovations in the space. And so suddenly hash rate kept climbing even when the price went down. And that actually made me think, Nobody could have kind of predicted this where in a sense, you know, if the price goes down by 30%, but suddenly somebody invents like some way of mining Bitcoin that's like 40% cheaper, uh, the hash rate will go up. And, and that's yeah. really, really cool. So in the sense of the, of the halving, I want to say maybe one of the things that's not priced in is really how, how would the halving, uh, uh, you know, affect the, the demand for Bitcoin. So again, back to the security guard analogy. You know, if suddenly you're paying half the amount per block, right, to, to secure the network, will the demand stay the same? Because if the demand stays the same, it's very clear that the price will go up. But maybe some people say, no, the demand will not stay the same. The demand will go down because security is down. And so that's one of the things that's impossible to price it because we don't know what the demand will be. We just need to let it play out, see what happens to the demand after having and if it stays the same or even goes up, I think it will go up uh, for reasons I'll mention a bit later that have more to do with the marketing and hype cycles that I think Satoshi purposefully put in there. But even forget about the marketing, demand stays the same, price goes down. As soon as that happens, then the price will go, uh, sorry, demand stays the same, uh, supply goes down. As soon as that happens and people see that the demand is really constant, then the price goes up and it's impossible to price it in because we don't know what's going to happen to the demand. Does sure. that make sense? That's yeah, I think it does. But it should be theoretically almost act like a bond and a coupon coming up, right? A coupon comes up, the price of the bond increases, increases, increases. The coupon payment is paid and then drops a little bit and then it builds up to the next one. So mm -hmm. theoretically, we should see, holding everything else the same, we should see a price acceleration up to the point of the happening, maybe drop a little bit and then, uh, you know, come back up again. It's not again. It's these are not. It's not exactly like a bond, but but it's an analogy that you know kind of uh, hits home for me. Now on the on the demand side, I think there's a lot, right? It's not just. Um, I think it's beyond. I think it's a very good point that you bring up, uh, bringing demand back in. But I think it's beyond. Just you know, hash rates coming into the market. I think it's actual folks that are either using Bitcoin. Uh, speculating on bitcoin or acquiring it as a currency mm -hmm. so you know it, it's still a very tiny percentage of the global economy oh yeah um right so it's even tiny percentage of the global commodities you know i i like to do what everyone compares it to gold and you know what if it took over gold because it's a better you know store value than gold and i believe all that then again it's a tiny fraction of just that right of just gold plus there are you know, big kind of speculative whales that haven't come into the market fully yet. People are dabbling with it, with Bitcoin, but I'm talking about a full entrance mm -hmm. uh, as a class of, of whales. I think on top of it is, you know, what's going to happen to the global the global economy. Yeah, that's look, right. And if the global economy, I think, goes into a recession, which is, you know, has been due for a couple of years now. Um, I think actually money will flood into Bitcoin for multiple reasons. One, because some countries are going to get hit much harder than others. Like, uh, you know, we'll see Venezuela type situations where they will need to find safe harbor or something less volatile than national currencies of nations that are either defaulting on their debt, you know, really increasing inflation, really printing money uh, and the like. And I do believe in more stable economies like the US, Germany, uh, you know, some of the European countries. Uh, Japan, uh, we're going to see a lot of cash really sitting on the sideline. 
mm-hmm. and we'll see an, uh, a, a market for crypto, uh, much of the same market as it's this, the private equity venture capital market in the U.S. has been for the last, uh, oh, we'll say five years. Mm-hmm. Just money sitting on the sidelines, waiting to jump into anything, having crazy valuations, creating we work like situations, even though we work was obviously SoftBank in Japan. But I think global, there's going to be a lot of global cash sitting there, not knowing uh, where to invest. And they'll come into Bitcoin and into other crypto, but really into Bitcoin as, as an investment vehicle. Yep. Yep. I completely agree. And you mentioned something that I think not many people are talking about. Uh, you mentioned gold. Now, the interesting thing about gold is if we look at the inflation rate of gold, uh, don't catch me specifically on the number, but I think after this having um, the inflation rate of Bitcoin will be more or less the same like that of gold. Before that having, so currently today, right, as we're recording this episode, the inflation rate of Bitcoin is actually larger than gold. And I don't think too many people are talking about that. Like people say, oh, yeah, you know, in 50 years, it will be much better than gold. Yes, that's true. But today, Bitcoin is actually not as good as gold. Uh, it inflates at a higher rate. So in a sense, if you had a million bucks and you could put some of them, in, uh, you could put half of it in gold and half of it in Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin would inflate at a higher rate than gold. And I think not too many people are aware of it. Now, what will happen is once the inflation rate matches, I think all hell will break loose because that is the first moment in time in which Bitcoin actually becomes a, comp- a, b- a better store of value than gold. And currently it's not. And I know people are like looking at the inflation schedule and they're saying, oh yeah, it is because we know that the halving is going to happen. But back to your point, we don't know that the halving is going to happen. Like we, we think there's a very, very, very high likelihood that the halving will happen, but it still remains to be seen. Now, what I think will happen, many, I have many friends that are like in the, both in the finance world, um, but also like just in tech, um, you know, smart people, but they don't know too much about finance. They don't know about all these mechanics, but they definitely know about the price of Bitcoin. And when the price of Bitcoin went up to like, you know, 13, 14,000 towards the end of uh, 2017, they were calling me up and asking me, hey, what's going on with this thing? Like, is it a pyramid scheme? Whatever, like, is it legit? And so I think once the halving happens, more and more people will start understanding, oh, this is better than gold. I'm going to start to transfer some of my gold uh, deposits, sell them into dollars, buy some Bitcoin, and then the number will start going up. The price will start going up. And then more and more people, even if they don't know about gold, they don't know about anything they just see the number go up and then it will just start this this bull run. And interestingly, historically, that's exactly how it has played out, which is bull runs happen more or less like the peak of the bull run is like a few months after the half. It, it doesn't happen the day of the half, right? Which means that there's a lag. There's, there's something like the information somehow needs to get um, to people. Now, it will be interesting to see this time. Because now I think people are much more educated than last time. I mean, last time was 2016, the last halving. It's crazy. Like, who knew about Bitcoin in 2016? But, uh, but I think those are my two cents, which is like, after this halving, for the first time, it becomes actually better than gold and not just expected to be better than gold. Yeah, so it's an interesting point. Um, uh, and it's an interesting observation that, you know, the, the peak happens uh, after the halving. I think it hopefully is different this time in many ways because I'm thinking 2016, you're right, not everyone knew. But there's an interesting perspective of you said, hey, people start coming up to you and saying, what is this thing? And there was a lot of interest, right? A lot of people kind of got burned if who came into the market. But I think there's a lot of people who were interested, really didn't understand it, were kind of holding. The market went south, the market tanked, they held through, and now the market is going to come up. A lot of them are going to say, huh, interesting. This thing it has resiliency. This thing is coming back up, and it's it's regaining, um, it's regaining its its might. And and frankly, it's kind of nice that it's. Uh, I think the positive uh, side of it, not just zooming back up, is it shows that the market is seriously weighing. You know, one, it's a nice bear run, which is natural. But two, it shows the market is really weighing and assessing this asset for real. 
well, before when it was, you know, under a thousand and went to like thirteen hundred. And I mean, it was still very, very nascent. It was hard to transact. You had to, you know, there were no on and off ramps. Now it's a real institutional grade investment in some cases. And so this is the time for the market to assess it, right? And when the market assesses it, it says, you know what, we, we got all the bad money to shake out and all the good money is kind of staying in. Time for a true bull run. Uh, and then the halving is going to happen. And then the supply will get constricted. I think there'll be a lot of folks coming back in the market. And then it becomes a nice reinforcing cycle. And what's interesting about it, you know, I'll just make one last point and turn it over back to you. But if you look at the charts, you know, every bottom is higher than the previous peaks peak. And that's a nice little case, especially in the Bitcoin world, because you have these virtual cycles because of the constraints in supply of people coming into the market, buying more of the asset. Uh, uh, the price moving up, obviously, because demand spikes. Then when it bursts, the market consolidates all the good money together, which by nature of a very nascent technology, there's more and more of it out there because more and more people are coming into the asset class. And that's why the floors are higher than, uh, than the ceilings or the previous ceilings. And then it comes back up again. So I really hope this new bull run you know, has the, the the bear market of today has shown investors and skeptics that the market with all these institutional investors, serious players in the game having invested, really assessed this asset, really proven its resiliency. And now hopefully this next bull run for many reasons having included will be a serious, serious bull run uh, where we're seeing, you know, 20, 30, 40, even higher values of the coin. Yeah, definitely. And and we'll see. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting what you said about the weak hands. Um, I think that's like crucial because like you can really see uh, like, for example, the 13K level. Um, you could see that there's a bunch of people that bought at 13K last time. And then when it hit 13K this time, they just dumped it all. They're like, fuck this. I don't want this investment. Right. And so those are the weak hands. And then the bottoms, so those are like the tops of the chart. Uh, I'm talking about tops of, of a price that has happened before, not like the top of like 20,000. Uh, but by the way, I, I promise you that once the price hits 20,000, uh, it'll go down for a second because many people bought like at the peak <laughs> and they just want to get rid of it. But, uh, but the bottoms are the people who are really uh, in there for the long run. And in a sense, it's almost like, I think that for Bitcoin to succeed, it has to have something that it does, that it does better than anything else. Um, and, and I think this like store of value aspect, it still hasn't proven out um, just because it's been very weird since 2008. You know, all the world governments have been printing money like crazy, but there has been no inflation pretty much like, you know, the like average basket of, of consumption, I don't think has gone up faster than before 2008, you know, like the rate is kind of constant and, you know, there's a lot of uh, controversy, you know, are the CPI numbers being manipulated or not, but it doesn't matter if they've been manipulated or not. I think the the, the rate of, of inflation of prices before 2008 is more or less the same, like the rate of inflation after 2008, even though the government printed shit tons of money, like so much money. And I'm not just talking about the US, like, um, again, I always refer people to, this website, Crypto Voices, they look at the the total global money supply and how it inflates. And it's just insane. Like, just like governments have been printing money at like 10, 11, 12, 13% per year. And I think people are not feeling that yet. And, and so once they start feeling it, then Bitcoin becomes the only thing that can store value. I don't know when that will happen. In a sense, if inflation doesn't pick up, I think it will be really bad for Bitcoin. Because again, why do you really need it? Like, um, but we'll see. Um, that's another one of the things that's not really priced in. Like, do you have any thoughts about like inflation and and how that would uh, affect the the price? Especially, let's say after the having, once it's like as good as gold in terms of inflation rates of Bitcoin itself. So, uh, wow, there's a lot of good points in there. Um, I love comparing it to, to what's actually happening in the world and why people aren't jumping into this asset class. And I think you're absolutely right, because folks haven't really felt it. 
Um, and I think it's because people, on one hand, there's a lot of easy investment money, but the other hand is, you know, the 2008 market struck so many folks that, that people are, people realize their savings are completely underwater. And now people are just being very, a lot more careful with, with their funds. So velocity is not really increasing. But without going too deep there, um, I completely agree that there is, at least in the major economies, right? In the, in the, in the smaller economies, Venezuela is a big one. There's a clear use case for Bitcoin, right? In some of the other up-and-coming economies, clear use cases of Bitcoin, although it's harder to get on and off and harder to actually get your money in there because the government's trying to stop it. But in the big economies, like the U.S., because there's no need for Bitcoin specifically, right? No need to transfer into it. I, because of inflation, because I agree with you. I think people are just not, they're not seeing it. And once it hits, once inflation really hits, and that might not be for a few years in the U.S., people really see uh, as, it as an ethnic class. Mm-hmm. So, so look, so look, I, I mean, I agree. All this is, is, uh, is, a, is a nice thing for Bitcoin. I think it's um, for an ultimate long run. Uh, of or long long term hold of value, I should say, right? In a long kind of bull run, um, but uh, but it might not happen for a few years here in the U.S. And 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 you know if it does, the other I think interesting use case is if we do go into a recession and there's really nowhere to cut rates anymore because we're near bottom anyway. What what the hell is going to happen then? And frankly, I have no idea. I mean, this is we we can see a situation like we've seen before. Where in 2008, at least we could cut rates and try to stimulate the economy. No, whether it was working you know, or not. Rates, by the way, this is this is where I'm like contrarian. Like, okay. literally have you know central bank pieces talking about negative five percent, negative ten percent, and 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 it's like you know when people say, oh my god, negative interest rates. This has never happened before. Bullshit. It has happened before. It's just that usually they do this with inflation. So usually what happens is the bond pays you like three percent, four percent. And then inflation is at like 7%, and then that's a negative interest rate. But now, because there's not inflation, uh, it's like they have to nominally pay negative interest rates, and that has never yeah. happened before. But I don't think the government, you know, another way to think about it, lowering interest rates is basically printing more money. It's the same thing, you know, that you increase the supply of money, the cost of borrowing that money goes down. And so there's nothing preventing governments. And just like, Printing a shit ton of money and airdropping it, like I really think, like oh, Andrew, could, the president, uh, the presidential candidate now, and, and it, it was in Switzerland. They had a referendum on universal basic income. Twenty-five percent of the population voted yes. Uh, here, there's a presidential candidate speaking about it. The government can always just like print a bunch of money. So I'm not so worried about like the recession, uh, you know, hitting and, and the government not being able to deal with it. I think they can always deal with it, but that will be amazing for Bitcoin, by the way. <laughs> like if a recession, I I know. Well, uh, I think you're wrong, but I hope you're right, <laughs> so to speak. Okay, why? Why do you think I'm wrong? Uh, because because we something we disagree on. <laughs> this yeah, that's good. Usually it happens uh, earlier in the episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, I no, I think you're wrong because I I think it's going to be very very hard optically and actually literally to have actual real negative interest rates. I should say actual nominal negative interest rates. And while I agree that interest rates and, and printing money are related, they're, again, they're not the same. There are two different tools, levers, that a government can pull to affect uh, with a central bank that can affect the, the, the economy. Um, but, but it's exactly the same. I mean, it's, it's, it's like they call them by two names, but basically the way it works is the government prints money and buys treasuries. Or even if they buy, they, they bought treasuries and they bought mortgage-backed securities. In both of these things, you buy the asset, the price of the asset goes up. There's an inverse relationship between the price and the interest rate. So as the price goes up, the interest rate goes down. And that's how they manipulate the interest rate. So it's always through printing of money. Uh, it's literally... Sure, but, but, but is, also... Right. But also setting the overnight lending rate, and also that which, which yeah, which lowers the interest rate. But anyway, we we went down deep. I, I just don't think it will actually 
politically work to literally go out there and say, hey, we are going to give people money to spend, right? Those are negative interest rates. That's really, nope. the, the, that's really what it is. They'll do it by just like extending your unemployment benefits like indefinitely. They'll basically say, oh, okay, you're unemployed, you get your unemployment check, but instead of it stopping after six months, it doesn't stop. As long as you don't have a job, you just keep getting it. Well, I, again, I, I think, I hope we don't see which one of us is actually right because it'll be a really, really tough situation. Good what? for Bitcoin, tough for the market. Why? Why? That's what I don't understand. Like a, a part of me thinks, I mean, and, and I'm happy we're going deep into this because it's like, we'll tie it back to like, is the having price in at the end? But hear me out. What is the role of government, right? To provide like food and shelter and, and stuff like that to, to the citizens. Now, like even in San Francisco, if you're a homeless person, uh, you have a much higher standard of living than if you were like, you know, a, a normal person like, you know, 500 years ago in Europe. So the government does a decent job at, at providing food and shelter and stuff like that. Now, okay. if let's say now we have a crazy, crazy recession, you know, 20% unemployment, 30% unemployment. What's preventing yeah. the government from just like giving money to people so they can buy food and keep paying their mortgage or, or pay rent? Like, yeah, there's you get, well, if you give money to people, the inflation goes up, they can't buy this food. Theoretically, the price of food goes up and they can't afford it anyway, right? So you're just creating a vicious cycle now. That's the economist. I'm not sure I agree with that. Like, uh, for food and for shelter, um, there's so much deflation. Like there's there's such crazy technologies for for growing food cheaply. Um, I don't think it's going to be a problem to feed like seven billion people with the resources we have as, as humanity. Like I, I just don't think it's going to be a problem. So I think I think if we well, were going deep here, but I think if this actually does happen, the government would have to actually build, create their own farms, build their own stuff, not just outsource and pay some company to do that because it will it, it just won't work and, and I don't think they won't be able to, to grow it food this cheaply and feed people. We can't feed people now. There are people starving in the world and and whether it's because we don't give a shit or because we can't, it's happening. Right. I think it's because we don't give a shit. It's not because we can't. I mean first of all people are not starving anymore. Uh, they're only starving in like war zones or or temporary yes. But anyway, my, my point is, look, if the recession happens and the government prints money, it will be really, really good for Bitcoin. Like we agree sure. on that. Agree. Yeah. And I think that is, in a sense, definitely not priced in. Uh, and like if, if there's no recession and the government doesn't print more money, uh, first of all, I believe the government's going to continue printing money. And my bet on Bitcoin, my personal bet on Bitcoin, it's just a bet that the government will continue printing money. So, so like that. Well, so, and that's what's not priced in by most people. Like most people actually think that the government can stop printing money, and and it will not. It, it will not yeah. be able, like. Are you gonna fire half of the people that work for the army? Like, are you gonna like? It, it's just impossible to stop. Politically impossible to stop spending this uh, this crazy, um, and and that can never be priced in by the mainstream, in my opinion. Well, because, and I agree with you, it's an excellent point that we haven't discussed in the beginning, the government's essentially control push for inflation. And it can't be priced in because we don't know what's gonna happen. Different administrations, different political views, different acceleration, you know, whatever side of the aisle you're on, traditionally Democrats wanna print money and Republicans wanna be conservative, and now with, you know, uh, with President Trump, the Republicans have become the party that prints more money than Democrats ever have. So you don't, the, you know, even the, the the kind of checks in the system with old patterns of a party's there for two years and it switches to a different party, even that's now thrown out the window, right? So you have no idea what the government is going to do and how. So I, I look, I, I I agree with that. I think you can't be priced in. That's another, you know, lover, if you will. I'm uncertainty, but uh, and that's my personal bet on Bitcoin as well. Yeah, and that also talks back to our first episode of like why like can Bitcoin be a better store of value than the stock market? Because in a sense, when the government prints money, the stock market goes up, 
And you, you see this, like there's so many charts for both the US stock market and the Fed. And there's like a perfect correlation of like how much the Fed balance sheet and the S&P 500. It's just like lines that completely track each other. And it also works on a world level. There's like a world um, monetary base line in the world stock market. And it's like fully like, you know, complete correlation. Yeah, it makes sense, right? The government prints money, people spend that money, and then the, the stocks of the companies that profit from it go up. Um, but the interesting thing is Bitcoin, the one thing that it can give you that the stock market cannot give you is uh, the fact that it's like unconfiscatable because with the stock market, they can always say, okay, we're printing all this money, but capital gains goes up to 30% instead of 50, like long-term capital gains. And then there's like nothing you can do about it because you cannot hold stocks like in your safe. You, you don't, you know, you, you hold them in a way that's transparent to the government. But with Bitcoin, they can say, oh, capital gain goes up to 30%. Okay, no problem. But like, <laughs> you, you can't really collect those capital gains if you don't like sell your Bitcoin to, uh, you know, to dollars in exchange. And so that's, I think, why when inflation happens, something that's not priced in, it will be really, really good for Bitcoin versus the stock market. And that, again, is not priced in just because I don't think people understand it. Like, I don't think people understand how much sovereignty you get by holding Bitcoin, like literally holding a password um, that controls the, the thing. So let me take it. I, I love these points. I was going to extend it to a slightly different topic and we can bring back about, you know, pricing. And ultimately, the question is, how much do we think it will go up, right? But yeah, what would happen in a world? Because every pro has a con. Everything pretty much is a double-edged sword. What would happen in the world where Bitcoin is fairly ubiquitous and everyone owes if we transact in Bitcoin instead of, you know, coming in and out of other fiat currencies? And you're starting to get people en masse losing their private keys because it is what's going to happen, right? In any way, the government essentially ensures people, if you take the most hardcore libertarian hat, the government ensures people from being stupid. Right, whether it's uh, essentially a big insurance run. If you're your own kind of city state and you and you create an alliance with, with, I'll create an alliance with you. And you're your own city state. Now we have a city state of two. We share common rules, and we get more and more and more people. We create some sort of government institutions to give us to stop us from having wars with someone else, mm-hmm. not to defend us, or from you know keeping us alive from us making stupid decisions essentially right that's the role of a centralized some sort of function mm-hmm. government trends policy anyway what happens when people start losing their private keys in mass and going broke on the streets i don't think it will happen in mass because i think uh, it will be like custody solutions uh, like you know just like simple stuff like gold right like it's not it, people discovered this so so long ago where like if you hold your own gold someone can just like conquer your city and take it from you but then you know you can store your gold in a different country and then just like have claims on that gold and like trade those claims but doesn't that take away from the whole it's going to centralize the decentralized in many ways we're going to pay a company to hold my private keys I don't know, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, it, it's a spectrum. I mean, this is like a very kind of philosophical debate on Twitter. People yeah. go crazy about it, but I really think it's just a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum of you have the crazy preppers that like live somewhere like off the grid with like uh, independent water supply and bars of gold and a shotgun and everything so they don't rely on anybody. Uh, you know, I live in a big city in the US. Like, if something happens to the government, I pretty much die. Like, you know, there won't be water coming to the to the tap, right? So I, I just choose to not have full sovereignty uh, because I think the chance of, of something happening is very low. So I think it will be the same with, with Bitcoin. One thing that separates Bitcoin from gold is that with gold, it was very easy for the government to confiscate it uh, because it was held in, in very few central locations, uh, like in a bank. Um, I think I, I heard um, when FDR basically confiscated everybody's gold, um, they didn't go door to door. They just went to the main banks and they said, OK, that's it. Like, you can't withdraw your gold. 
So with Bitcoin, it's much harder to do, even if you use a custody solution, because I think what will happen is all these custody solutions, they'll compete with each other and they'll have like a multi-sig setup where you need like three signatures from three different continents, one in China, one in Russia, one in the U.S. And so the, the chance of the government's colluding, I mean, yeah, there is a chance and it's a spectrum, right? Like, of course, yeah, if you put all your Bitcoin on Coinbase, uh, super easy for the government to take it. But for example, I know a company called Kraken, they're much better than Coinbase in the sense that, you know, they try to be distributed kind of globally. So, you know, if, if the government wants, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I hear that, you know, if the government wants to confiscate, if, if the U.S. government wants to confiscate a Bitcoin belonging to a U.S. citizen, they'll be able to do it. But if the U.S. government wants to confiscate a Bitcoin of a Russian citizen, uh, they won't be able to do it because they probably have servers in Russia uh, holding those Bitcoins. So I think you can get really creative. It's not the state of affairs now, but you're talking about a time where everybody uses Bitcoin. I think by then, people figure it out somehow. If, a Russian, if the Russian government wants to confiscate the Bitcoin of a U.S. citizen, I think they uh, will also be able to do it. No. Too exactly. soon? Too soon of a political joke or not? Oh, <laughs> yeah, the joke was, you know, Donald Trump was thinking that Bitcoin is bad. He's like, AKA, I want the price to go down so I can buy some. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Look, the, the reason why I brought all this up, and actually we should do an episode on this, because it's an interesting philosophical discussion, is because I think that by far the biggest driver of the price is demand. Maybe that's an easy thing to say, but since it's now resilient, and since we know that it's a mathematical, mathematically locked supply, then the concern about what's going to happen with supply like it is with some other coins uh, or it is with any other asset really are really gone right because there's only a concentrated supply and so it's all about the usability of this asset the the kind of the hero case um as i think you called it earlier or the superpower mm-hmm. and once the superpower is proven and used that's it you know it's off kind of off to the races What's an interesting and what's the so if demand is driving most of the price and and that is that price then or not, the more and more we go through time, the more we realize what these positive and negative use cases are going to be. Positive use case, more number you know, larger number of people go buying these the, these assets, uh, buying Bitcoin. Great, fantastic, good for the price, right? Good for the people that own it now. Um, another positive use case. You know, more velocity of, of Bitcoin, which theoretically should stable the volatility, also good, right? Because at least it's becoming a much better store of value. Even more people come into the market, right? It's a virtual cycle. The negative is we don't know what the use cases are going to be. If there is no multi-sig solution, people don't trust it. If people start losing their private keys and say, you know what, this is not dummy proof enough, so to speak. And uh, too much risk. I don't want to bury the money under my mattress anymore. If my house burns down, I'm going to put it into a bank. And then we go into a centralized system again. Or if governments really do collude, because if the governments actually do collude, like if the US and Russian and Chinese governments say we're going to stop this thing, it'll be with the hash power they have or take over this thing and the government resources they have today right i don't know what's going to happen later on if this really becomes ubiquitous and has millions really hundreds of millions and billions of true nodes around the world then it will be pretty much impossible to start but today if the governments collude bitcoin could go down right there's there's enough hash power yes. that, that they yeah. i mean again i don't think today it's it's not even significant it, it, it doesn't they don't care exactly at all so it's like Almost when it becomes important enough for them to collude, by then we'll be really good. Like, I think even if it takes like 50% of the gold value, right, that's $250,000 for Bitcoin. If it just takes half of the market cap of gold. And, and I think that's amazing, right? You have such a huge upside without considering this whole world money thing. Like, I, in a sense, you know, when a VC invests in a startup, they have like different outcomes. And they put different probabilities, you know, to these outcomes. And then they sum up the valuation of each outcome times the probability. And then that's like the valuation they believe the startup is worth. So I think in a sense, for me, the biggest case for Bitcoin is it has a very high likelihood of taking 
50% of gold, just 50%. And then in that case, it's super, super bullish. Now, I really think that what's going to happen in the next halving that people do not understand is people will start talking about it. People will start understanding, oh my God, this thing, there's nothing basically in the world that increases in um, supply slower than gold. Nothing exists in the world. And, and after the next halving, we'll have the first such thing. So it's going to be amazing. I mean, it's, it's just like, I don't see any way in which the price doesn't go up by a lot. Now, you spoke about like how much it will affect the price. You know, there's different models. Um, there's a very popular model that they just looked at different, um, you know, they basically fitted uh, a model that looks at the inflation rate. They call it stock to flow, but stock to flow is basically inflation increase rate. And uh, they, they, they got like a really high R square. And then that model says that after the next halving, the pricing, the price will be 100,000 for Bitcoin. You know, I, I like the model because it's very simple. You know, I, uh, when I studied statistics in the university, there's pretty much a rule of thumb that says the more complicated the model, the higher likelihood that you're overfitting, right? That you're like, you know, uh, looking for something to explain the past data, but this past stuff will not continue in the future. If the model is very simple, the chance of overfitting is pretty low. So that, that's, that's what people say, 100,000. Um, and we'll see if that plays out. But I'm saying even if that particular model breaks down, I'm just excited. Humanity will have a new thing after this next halving, which is something that increases less than gold every year. Like gold increases something like 1.9%. Bitcoin will increase less than that. And that's going to be amazing. Um, what do you think? <laughs> uh, not much to think because I agree with you. I think it will be, you know, from a, especially from a humanity perspective, it's, this whole thing is great. Um, just hopefully, you know, governments don't collude in time. And this thing becomes big enough that it, that it holds. But I, I look, I agree. I'm I'm excited what's going to happen in, in a few months from now. Yeah, um, and and we'll see. Like for me, also the other big threat is if people just like um th there was a i forget where i read about this but some people say maybe you won't need a store of value. like this is this is like a big threat that the government can do which is they can be i mean what's the purpose of a store of value right like it's not an investment it's not like when you invest in something and you expect a return a store of value is basically just hedge against uncertainty it's like you know you keep some cash in your uh, in your account, you know, in case you lose your job and it takes you like, you know, six months to find or a year to find a job. So you want to have cash that's not like, because if you lose your job, because also the stock market fell, because guess what? The whole economy fell. And then if all your money's in the stock market, you're pretty much screwed. So that's like the purpose of a store of value. So the government could like just completely destroy the case for a store of value. They could say, look, any citizen would just give them a loan uh, th that's like, six months of whatever they were making um, and, and it's just guaranteed, like get it no matter what. And then it will be interesting because then really people will just put their money in the stock market because it does grow. Like one thing that is a threat to Bitcoin is stock market creates dividends. Like it, it actually builds things, you know, that, that, that make profit. Uh, a store of value does not make profit. It does not create dividends. So, I think if I were the government, and that's how I would go after Bitcoin. And that's pretty much what they did with gold. I mean, in 2008, I think the correlation between gold and the stock market was the weakest ever compared to previous stock market crashes. Like in, in, in previous stock market crashes, stock market crashes, gold goes up by a lot. This time it also went up, but not by as much. And people say governments just, just took care of it by just printing tons of money bailing out the companies, uh, you know, doing all of these things where people said, okay, I'll just weather the storm. I'm not going to sell my stocks and buy gold. I'm just going to like keep my money in the stock market. And the crazy thing is it worked. Like the bottom of the S&P 500 at the bottom of 2008 was 666. I know this because like it's uh, the devil's number, <laughs> 666. So people are thinking 
so that was the absolute bottom. Now we're at what, 3,200? So, you know, if you just held on and didn't touch your stocks and had like an, an you know, didn't need to sell stocks in order to live uh, or to pay your mortgage, sure. uh, then it's like you just hold on and then the stock market goes up. And then, then maybe the whole kind of gold uh, value, the whole gold market cap can shrink. That's another thing people are not talking about. Like people say, oh, it will take 50% of gold. For sure it will. But what if the whole market cap of gold goes down? Because the government's just become really good at insuring against uncertainty. So that's also not pricing. <laughs> but uh, who knows? That's, that's an interesting thought. I, I frankly haven't, haven't thought about that one. Uh, that's fascinating. The government will be able to give you enough returns, essentially. But it'll, I think it might, it might be hard to control the market. I mean, I know you said if you have a, if you need to sell at 666, but if you need the liquidity, I mean, we're talking about on a mass scale here. Even gold is a pretty is a pretty mass market product, mm-hmm. right? Where you have, especially a lot of folks, maybe unfortunately, that don't have a lot of income have been conned into buying gold, right? Mm-hmm. Or or have been have been pushed into buying and holding gold. Now, it could have worked out well for them, but likely it hasn't. And so, so if we're talking about 50% of gold, Bitcoin is becoming a pretty mass market tool. And in a mass market tool, you know, during, it will be very hard for the government to provide that kind of uh, future insurance to really, to folks that will need to cash out constantly, will not be able to hold on their investment for you know 2008 to now 10 years 10 years is a long time to hold on to your investment and not cash out but why i mean what why can't the government just say oh you have mortgage payments we'll make the mortgage payments for you and so you know you don't get equity in your home the government will get equity in your home but then you know you can pay us later and the equity goes back to your name uh oh you need food no problem i'll give you like you know up to a thousand dollars per month Every person can take up to $1,000 per month, just a debit card. You just use it and it just like accrues, you know, like to your name. Uh, but it's all, you know, guaranteed by the government. Like You can do. Well, ma- but, but what's the sorry, but what, what's the point of the government to do that? So people don't sell their stocks and, and further crash the market. Right. So like the government, the president can come out and say, hey, guys, don't sell your stocks. Don't cash out your 401ks like they're coming back up because we're going to bail out all these companies and whatever. And by the way, uh, you know, log into irs.gov with your social security number and you get like a 16 number debit card that you can use to buy food. If you need like, you know, mortgage uh, help with paying your mortgage, no problem. You know, click there and like your mortgage just starts being paid by the government. And like, you know, they can do this. That's I mean, I think they did with mortgage-backed securities, by the way. This was the huge criticism that people said, why do they basically bail out the rich people who are homeowners and screw the poor people that are renters when the Fed just bought mortgage-backed securities in 2008? They just bought people's mortgages. They're like, okay, now the government owns your mortgage, not this private company that took the risk. It's crazy, but it's doable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, no, I get it, but that was again. I mean, I think we're going down down a deep hole here, but it's those are mortgages. This is gonna we're talking about, you know, every aspect of your life theoretically. I don't know. I, I guess I need to give it a little bit more thought. I haven't fully thought it through because this is the first time I'm hearing of this idea, and it, it is quite interesting. I just don't think it's quite feasible for the government to step in and literally say, "Hey, put your life on hold for ten years because we'll come back up for five years." So, but and trust us that it would. And in the meantime, we're just going to pay for everything. That creates what incentive is that great for people to actually work and get out of a rut and an economic to to produce to try? If they're saying, oh, the government could just take care of everything, doesn't it just become communism then? No, you just guarantee a minimum. Like you know, you can't like go out to restaurants, but you can like buy groceries. So like you want to get a job, so you can like. Do the extra. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with buying groceries and just, you know, hanging out at home with my family. I don't need to go out to restaurants. I think it creates this incentive to actually get out of the rut. That's true. Right? And then you and then it creates a vicious cycle. Oh, so that's I'm, interesting actually. So you're saying the problem is not that the government will print you know, I've never thought of that. It's not the problem that the government will print money and create inflation. 
even if it doesn't create inflation, it will just kill productivity because everybody will just sit at home and like not do anything. Yeah, because you can, you can create inflation many different ways. If you create inflation by giving folks checks, like universal basic income, if you will, one of the reasons why I actually don't think it will work, even though before I, I was for it, is because it would just it will kill any kind of incentive to produce, right? There'll be enough people out there, enough N, that's bigger than zero, right? of folks that are absolutely a-okay with getting whatever this handout is and just doing the basic thing. And if the government truly guarantees this, it's not like you're gonna go into debt, even if you're going to debt against yourself like a form, okay, you have to pay back. But that means it's not truly guaranteed. The government truly guarantees, truly is able to provide this kind of insurance policy. It means that you, you can walk away and nothing will happen to you, right? And if that's the case, you have, there's, uh, some sort of end people, not not the ultra driven, right? They want to become rich, but there's a good amount of people like I don't care about a restaurant. I'm happy going to the grocery store, cooking at home, hanging out with my family and kids, and just doing my thing. Thank you, thanks U.S. Yeah, well then they can I guess phase it out really by inflation. So they give you like whatever a thousand dollars a month to buy groceries, and then like the price of groceries goes up by five percent every year. But and so with. <laughs> you know within a couple of years you're like okay i need to find a job but i mean that's like a different discussion we, we should make an episode on <laughs> on like how can government make store of value i mean look it's it's true like someone told me in the 1900s people were store, storing a lot more value in a non-speculative way that's a fact people bought life insurance people do not buy life insurance anymore as much mm-hmm. because in a sense, a life insurance is a store of value. It's like it makes, it, it gives a certain amount to your family, right? And and then now because of inflation and stuff like that, people are like, no, it's fine. Like you know, the government the government will take care of my family, uh, and that's a fact. Like people used to hold thirty percent of their portfolios in cash. Like I don't remember when, but I heard this this um, stat where you know in the early nineteen hundreds. People held cash. Now people don't hold cash because it loses value so much. So who knows? Um, but I mean, maybe we should tie it all back to the how. Whether it's priced in. Yes. What's really cool is look, all these scenarios that we're talking about, it's impossible that every single person has considered all of these scenarios with the exact right probabilities and it's all priced in. It's just impossible. And I think that's what we can make money by saying it's not priced in. That's like the investment opportunity, which means like, you know, we know something that other people do not know. And I think that's a good case for it. Like, I think it's not priced. What do you think? I, well, I agree. I, well, I think it's, it's, the expectations are maybe priced in. So the price is coming up a little bit, but I, I think it's just a small little tiny part of, uh, uh, really of the main price of a currency and all these scenarios all these unknown unknowns all these different ripple effects and all the things we're discussing again it's impossible to see and understand and really connect the, the butterfly effect of something happening you know with a government policy on one side of the world that affects bitcoin that affects you know the lives of a different person uh, you know you know hundreds of uh, hundreds of thousands of kilometers away from them so it's an exciting time, but I think we both agree uh, about the store value arguments, about the lowering of the supply arguments, and uh, let's see what's going to happen. But we, I think we definitely took two or three podcasts out of this. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, what's going to happen with the government, and can the government create a better insurance policy than Bitcoin? I think it's one. Two is what would happen in the world? Is there some sort of centralization after the decentralization? And I actually... I think yes, but I have some arguments there and some data points to prove it. Um, and uh, what else? Was there a third? I mean, yeah, we had many, many things that came up. We'll have to re-listen and, and, and uh, take some notes. We'll have to re-listen, but listen, I just had a fantastic analogy uh, for the price in thing that I think will really tie it together for our listeners, okay? So Donald Trump on the campaign trail, He's like, I'm going to lower the corporate tax. I'm going to start a trade war with China, right? Let's just take those two things, right? So, okay, until he got elected, of course, those things are not priced in. But then if you look at the stock market 
from the time he got elected, right, all the way to like today, uh, it clearly was not priced in, even though he promised very specific, very tangible things, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because people say, ah, maybe he won't get away with it, maybe China will push back, maybe this, maybe that. So in a sense, that's the same. Like, he was very, very clear in what he wants to do. And, but then as it kind of played out, more and more people understood, oh, he's really going to deliver uh, the promise, right? Like, it's, there's a saying in, uh, in uh, a language uh, that I know, which says, it's nice that you promise me something, but do you also promise to keep your promise? Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same thing. It's like, we promise that the supply rate of Bitcoin will go down to below gold. Uh, we promise that, you know, everything will work smoothly. And we kind of promise that the demand will not go down because of that, because the security will go down. Let's now see if it keeps its promise. <laughs> but if it does, it should work out pretty well. I agree. Well, look, with that note, I think we should wrap up this, this pod. And then uh, on to the next one. Yeah, totally. And please, uh, dear listeners, if you can rate the podcast, uh, leave us some comments. This is very much like a work in progress, but we would really love to hear any feedback on how to make the show better. And uh, yeah, until next time, have uh, happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays, Mr. High. Happy holidays, Mr. Low. Talk soon. Talk to you soon. Bye.